0: One of the issues that I'm faced with is, um, and this is true in so many areas of life, if I seek to get everything right and I only come up 85% successful, I don't really have a guilt complex about that because if I'm trying to do that many things and I come up a little bit short, that still means I got a lot of stuff done.
1: You are listening to Wealthy Advisor Mindset Podcast, a show dedicated to helping financial advisors grow their AUM while enjoying a great quality of life by creating a high performance mindset. Guiding you on this podcast is none other than Nina Cook, a seasoned mindset coach who has worked with hundreds of business owners over the last decade to dissolve all their self-sabotaging behaviors and habits to achieve their business goals so they can have a much bigger impact and make much more money. Throughout the show, We'll deliver actionable strategies to grow your practice more easily and quickly, while revealing the incredible possibilities that emerge when you tap into your best self. Ready for a breakthrough that amplifies your impact and profits? Let's dive in.
2: I have a very, very special guest for you to meet today, and I'm really excited about introducing him to you. His name is Mike Ross, and he's the founder and owner of Lattice Wealth Management Group, Inc. Prior to that, Mike spent almost 35 years at Morgan Stanley. He and his team have always taken a disciplined approach to investing and managing client relationships, a skill developed during his years as a captain in the US Air Force. Lattice works with individuals, families, businesses, and nonprofit organizations. Their focuses are business owners prior to and immediately after a liquidity event. And millennial IT workers who need help managing multiple equity compensation plans. Mike, a very, very warm welcome. It's such a pleasure to have you here.
0: Well, thank you, Nene. It's it's a, my pleasure to be here. Thank you very much.
2: You've had a long career in corporate, and then you made the jump into becoming an independent financial advisor which I'd love to explore with you in more depth. But first, can you tell us a little bit about how you came about to being the owner of your own private practice?
0: So uh, when I left the bank, um, I was obviously uh, given the opportunity to go to another, you know, big financial services organization or a small financial services organization. But really because I wanted to maintain my team as it was. I wanted to have all of us working together and not um, um, having to spread everyone thin across an entire organization uh, and really focus on how we work with clients. I chose to, instead of shifting to another bank or something like that, going out on our own private practice, practice, just both for employee, development as well as to give us some tools we didn't have and would never have at a bank.
2: That's a big transition to make from being employed to becoming, you know, your own person, doing your own thing, running your own practice. What was the mindset around that? Is this something that you struggled with doing or did it come very easily to you to make that transition?
0: Well, You know, throughout all those years, and frankly, through regulatory creep, um, um, uh, my my colleagues that work at the larger financial institutions have an ever shrinking array of tools they can use to work with clients. So the ability, the opportunity set to literally broaden out what I could do and have more tools to work with clients on was something I just couldn't pass up. It just made too much sense to be able to be independent and have that kind of latitude of ways to help clients.
2: So you jumped at the opportunity to be able to do your way with the best tools you could possibly have.
0: Well, and and also, you know, I have a lot more flexibility in terms of how I uh, am compensated. I have diff- different approaches with different people that kind of meet their needs better. So it was, clearly it was the tools because, again, when you work for a large financial institution, you're constrained by what their management teams and staff think you need. Whereas when you're on your own, you have this broad array of different choices on tools to use on a, and approaches to take in your work. So it just gave us a ton of flexibility to, to better tailor our services to the clients we wanted to work with.
2: That makes absolute sense. When you decided to make this big change and start up your own practice, did you feel any fear around doing that? And if you did, how did you deal with that?
0: I felt fear every day when I woke up. <laughs> I can remember. So So um, one of the, uh, the, the mentors while, uh, while I was at Smith Barney that I w- always revered, was a gentleman by the name of Sandy Weil, who was who a legend on Wall Street in so many different ways. And he did so many things to empower both financial advisors and their clients. And I remember a quote by Sandy where he said, he may go to, I might go to bed feeling depressed about things, but I always wake up an optimist. And my flip side of that is I would wake up and say, wait a minute, how's all this stuff going to work out? But by the time I got fully engaged in the day and I was talking to clients, that was such an energizing thing that by the end of the day, I felt better as opposed to at the beginning of the day. So I would say that it was the intensity around client conversations that kind of got me through the, uh, uh, the brick wall of, of, of moving everybody because they were, by and large, incredibly enthused about the decision.
2: Wonderful. And the mindset isn't something that's discussed regularly in the financial advisory world. Why do you think that mindset is such an important piece for the success of advisors?
0: Well, my, my opinion is that we're all given the same set of tools and how we use them, how we choose to use them is a function of our determination, our sense of uh, you know, mission, and both of those really constitute mindset, that determination that we're going to finish the job we started, that um, uh, uh, you know, enthusiasm around solving client problems. When you go into it with that, you know, that's a, there's a dimension of humility to that, and there's a dimension of intensity to it. When you go into the situation with, I need to, they, they, these clients have this set of problems, and it's up to me to solve them. You know, I would say that um, that requ- requires a bit of a leadership role. Not much is talked about with financial advisors and leadership, but, you know, these people, the clients you work with, are looking to you to set the pace to make sure that they achieve the goals they set up with. So you you own a leadership role, and you need to step into those shoes and be the leader and, and kind of drive them to the solutions that they seek. So I would say the mindset is one of, you know, I have a responsibility to Get, the, get these clients, as well as staff, quite frankly, to a certain level of comfort. And if, if it doesn't happen, then we're, I'm going to leave them in a vacuum. So I would say that that responsibility toward uh, leadership is a really important facet.
2: Yeah, yeah, that makes absolute sense. You mentioned determination as well, determination to make sure you finish the job. Now, that job can be a number of things in um, a financial advisor's world. It can be finishing the job, you know, in terms of looking after the client. It can also mean finishing the job in terms of finishing a marketing strategy off and seeing it through to the end. And I know from working with financial advisors that one of their big challenges is around not finishing things. One financial advisor said, I've got many half-built bridges in terms of marketing strategies. And then he felt he didn't have enough leads because he wasn't marketing efficiently and consistently. So there's a fear with some financial advisors, isn't there, that if they were to market themselves and put themselves out there, they would be open to rejection, that they may be people who aren't interested in working with them. They may find that you know they, don't, they, they, they haven't got the business that they actually want. They can't market effectively. They don't know how to do it. They're scared of putting themselves out there. So there is this, uh, there is a fear around marketing in, um, in some areas. Is that something that you've ever encountered? Well, you
0: know, in your description, you hit upon something that is the Achilles heel of anyone when they're doing marketing, and that is... Number one, you need to focus the marketing towards something, towards some differentiator, and you know the the challenge you face is as you learn more skills, as you deal with different people in different situations, some of that evolves. Um, I'm reminded of a, of a quote. I, I think probably most of your list, your listeners, Nina. Uh, remember one of the founders of the big technology firm Intel uh, by the name of Andy Grove, and uh, I was reading his memoirs not that long ago. When one thing that stuck out at me this time when I read it was that uh, a CEO's job is never done. You don't ever finish as a CEO. You just at the end of the day, when you're tired, you go home and you start it again the next day. And I would, I would. Most of the functionality around the job uh, relates to it. Thing you know, events and circumstances continue to evolve, and you just need to keep, you know, for lack of a better term, chopping wood. You just need to focus on something. I would, I would opine, Anina, that marketing and sales, as well as continuing education, never go away they they will evolve over time but they never go away and really one of the things that i've discovered with the best financial advisors is that we they however you want to frame it are constantly trying to learn new skill sets because as laws change and as clients evolve they get older they gain wealth they change their needs in order to kind of keep up with them you need to keep learning things and the idea that you can cruise to me is an anathema you just need to keep learning things when you cease to want to learn things that may be the time to kind of hang up your uh hang up your boots so to speak
2: Do you ever struggle with procrastination
0: Uh uh so I always have a list of things to do Um I I would I would Show you my, my uh, legal pad here, but I think it'd be kind of boring. I always have a list of things to do. Um, and um, I will tell you that maybe one of my better strengths is the ability to accept to know what my priorities are on any given day. I have right now uh, six different things that I absolutely positively need to get done today. There are other things on that list that have been there for a while. But they're there until I strike them off. So I will get them done, but they are not the highest priority. So I, I, I probably do struggle with procrastination, but I think that is, um, uh, that is over-emphasized. I tend to think what I try to do is keep that list dynamic and make sure I have the right priorities in any given day to finish things up.
2: And also, you've got a, uh, a number of things there, which is possible you can, you can get six things done in a day. If you had 12, 15 things on that list to get done in one day, that would feel overwhelming. So it's keeping that list short enough that you can look at it and think, that's achievable.
0: Well, and hopefully, at least this is my goal, I've prioritized them in such a way that if the, if the last one doesn't get done, that's something I can work on tomorrow. Because I got the most important ones done today. Yeah. And so when I finish the day, I don't finish it with a guilt complex. I finish it saying, I got back to Andy Grove. I got done everything I could possibly do today. I'll start tomorrow with and I'll reassess my priorities.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned that that was an Achilles heel. What other Achilles heels have you noticed that financial advisors struggle with?
0: So, it's that blend between managing managing your clients, managing portfolios, and managing employees and getting that balance right. There are days and weeks when I spend too much time with clients and too little time with employees training them. There are other days that I, uh, or weeks that because I think is important, I work more on kind of portfolio architecture and less with clients or employees. So the Achilles heel is getting that balance right. And I'll be the first to tell you that I come up short on that. Um, And you you just kind of can continue to adapt as time goes by.
1: Are you frustrated with your inability to take the next steps to grow your practice and worry that your same old tired strategies don't seem to work any longer? If this is you, then listen up. Nina has spent the last two decades coaching financial advisors and has cracked the code to growing AUMs, hitting bigger profits in your business and achieving a higher quality of life. You can now get access to those secrets in her game-changing book, Renegade Mindset, a financial advisor's guide to a peak performance mindset. In the book, Nina will share her proven process for success To take you from chasing clients to attracting high paying ones by creating a success driven mindset. So, if you are struggling with stagnation, then this could give you the breakthrough you've been searching for. This is different to anything you may have come across before. For being an awesome listener to this podcast, our team would like to gift you a free copy of the book, Renegade Mindset, a financial advisor's guide to a peak performance mindset. You can get your free copy at ninabook.org. You only have to pay for shipping and handling. Once again, the link to get a free copy of this book is ninabook.org. The link is also in the description. Don't miss out on this exclusive opportunity to grow your AUM and stop hustling for your next client. Now, back to the show.
2: Yeah, it's a a juggling act, isn't it?
1: Oh,
0: it is.
2: And you're not going to get the perfect balance, but it's striking it as close as you can. So it works. Every area is well looked after.
0: Well, and you know, one of the issues that I, I'm faced with is, um, and this is true in so many areas of life. If I seek to get everything right and I only come up 85% successful, I don't really have a guilt complex about that. Cause if I'm trying to do that many things and I come up a little bit short, that still
2: means I got a lot of stuff done. Absolutely. And perfectionism is a curse, isn't it?
0: Uh, you know, well, it's something to aspire to, but it's, not, it's something that you don't get hung up on if you can't do it.
2: Yes, absolutely. Don't let it stop you from marketing and doing all those things. How, how do you deal with stress and pressure? You're running uh, you know, practice, you're responsible for clients, your team, profits, etc. You know, how, how do you deal with it on a day-to-day uh, basis?
0: Well, you know, when you look at high-performance people in all aspects, um, be it sports, be it entertainment, be it business, um, I think what you discover is that they're conscious of the fact that they have to exercise. That's, that's, That's a vital piece of one's life. They have to eat right. That's a vital piece of one's life, and they have to get enough sleep. So, um, you know, it's, it's trying to strike the right blend. Uh, I guess the other thing, Nina, is you better enjoy what you're doing. You, you better get up every day and say, this is fun, because if you get up every day and it's sheer drudgery, maybe you ought to think about doing something else.
2: It's interesting because you mentioned sleep, exercise, and eating well. So this is all self-care. Sure. And it's something that many, many business owners overlook in their own lives. They're so busy looking after other people and making sure that their family's okay and everything else that they stop or they forget to take care of themselves. It's something where well, I'll get around to it in the new year. I'll start an exercise routine. I'll lose some weight. I need to sort out my sleep. And they keep pushing it out further and further and further. But it's the most important thing because the better we're functioning, the healthier we are, the more we have to give. The more energy we have, the more focus we have. You know, we can we can just be so much better every single day. So, why do you think that's such a neglected part for so many entrepreneurs?
0: Oh, I I think it begins with habits in their youth. You know, and in, 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 you know, you know, many many people, most people, arguably began habits around all those kinds of things when they were young so they don't have to relearn the habits later. Um, I think it's, and and, you know, you used a term earlier on that I think fits here, which is self-awareness. If I have not, if I've spent a week or two not exercising or eating in a poor fashion or certainly not getting enough sleep, I can feel it after a handful of days and uh, you know you got to catch up. Uh, you and so you know that also goes. And this is kind of back to priorities. There's this concept. I, I'm going to kind of turn a, a very well quoted concept on its ear right now, which is this emphasis on what is what is described as work-life balance. And I'm going to say the emphasis instead of balancing one's time, is balancing one's priorities. Um, if, um, if it is an absolute mandatory thing, high on the list to get X, Y, and Z done, and th- those are related to um, things other than work, that doesn't negate the fact that they're important. But it's not that I'm trying to ration my time. It's trying, that I'm trying to ration my priorities on things that certainly are work-related, but they're also related to other parts of my life.
2: Yeah, that's so important, the work-life balance. And I know of many um, advisors who work very, very long hours. But that can be also because they're not great delegators. They feel they have to do it themselves, that other people can't do as well as them, and they end up sometimes doing low-cost-per-hour work. When they could be giving that to someone else to do. So that's another thing, isn't it? About how to manage your time well and make sure that you're working on the high priority activities rather than busy doing admin and things which you shouldn't be doing.
0: So so I think the way I view that is I'm gonna to try to delegate things, but I'm also gonna build into the system, build into the checklist, if you will, a feedback loop so that I can see. After an activity, whether it's done the way I want to want it to be, and then if if it isn't, I can tweak the series of steps, the checklist, if you will, on doing it. Um, uh, and the, you know, I'm I really am comfortable with delegating because I think I can clearly tell people what to do, and then I discover the way I described it isn't what they heard. So that kind of goes back to emphasis on. uh, That employee interaction, uh, which, as I think you know, is ever more challenging in this work for home world. You know, you have staff that wants to work from home, and that makes it tougher on the manager getting that feedback loop in. So I would say it's tougher to run an organization now than it was pre pandemic because of this, um, uh, the ability to work from home in so many cases.
2: How are you working around that? How are you making that work for you and your team?
0: Well, so um, you just, uh, I did a really poor job of this initially, and then I read a couple books about it. And what you realize is that on a ver- because there's no kind of, if you will, water cooler time anymore, there's no time where between a call you can walk in and talk to somebody, you have to be very deliberate very deliberate on making sure that you have uh, regular and disciplined, ongoing conversations and document sharing and information sharing uh, with employees, both on a one-on-one basis as well as in a group. It's harder now than it was five years ago. It's harder now, um, but if you're going to make it work, you, you just got to you have to figure out a way to do it.
2: Yeah, and the hybrid working looks like it's here to stay, doesn't it? It,
0: it, it does. It does. I don't think that uh, that, that one's going to go back in the in the box anymore. I think <laughs> no. we're, we're we're in the world we live in today.
2: Yeah, it was a very rapid transformation. Wasn't all missed overnight? It, man, was it ever? they were all scrambling so, to adapt to it. <laughs>
0: so you know, in so many ways, the world's you know the economies, uh, the lifestyles are getting back to where they were pre-pandemic, but. There are both good things and bad that we just got to accept as part of real life again. And those are new things that we didn't have. I mean, you think about all the different technological uh, innovations that have come over the last 25 years. Well, this is just yet another innovation. And, you know, you can use it or you can, you got to be attentive to it. You got to try to blend different forms of contact. I find that with clients too. There's some that only want to text. Now you can only text so much before you have regulatory issues and you have to talk. So, so what the pandemic has brought us is a couple more dimensions of communication. And you have to be very, very thoughtful about which type of communication you're going to use and which set of circumstances. Uh, it's just. Uh, the the world we live in now, as opposed to the way it was pre pandemic.
2: Yes, absolutely, and we're very lucky because we can adapt. We are creatures which have adapted many, many, many times. It's really the way that we look at it: is this something that's going to hold us back, or is it something that could be another opportunity for us? It's always the reaction, isn't it, to a new situation, which is the most important thing, not the actual situation itself. Well, so
0: so, Nina, let's. I'm gonna. I'm going to tip my hat to uh, the British Empire here, in that you and I are talking on different sides of the Atlantic. I had a conversation earlier today, and this kind of goes back to, frankly, the Spanish-American War. I had a conversation with one of my employees that's in the Philippines. I, I'm working with someone in South Africa on different projects. So that's the other phenomenon that we have in this Zoom world: is um, we're very much global as long as everyone speaks the same language. So. There may have been some hardships with the British Empire, but there, we also got some benefits here, talking to people in India and in South Africa and in the, the UK as well as America, you know, and it ends up being a good thing.
2: But tell me, when, you, when something goes wrong, because obviously we always have curveballs coming our way, we can't control that, when there's a setback, how, how do you get over that? How do you pick yourself back up and keep going? Is it stuff? Is it something to throw you for a, a while, or do you manage to get over it quite quickly? Or how do you deal with setbacks?
0: Well, at the risk, so so so, since I was in college, I have failed at many many things. What separates me, perhaps, from the next person is that in most of those cases, not all of them, but in most of those cases uh I kind of pick myself back up and and try it again because I kind of have my eyes on the goal in most cases so um failure begots uh an- another attempt and and if you really want it you you get it right over time that that hasn't helped with in, in me with golf to be sure that hasn't helped in other eye to hand coordination things, but then I go another direction I do other kinds of exercises but the point I guess the point I'm making is uh, I ended up uh, it, both in college, in my Air Force time, and certainly throughout my financial advice um, uh, career, I've always kind of uh, aspired to get to a higher level, and I've not always uh, achieved it the first time. So you just kind of come back and try it again in a different way.
2: How do you view Bapalia? Is this something that stops you in your tracks, or as you said, you keep your eye on the goal and therefore you keep going? How do you view failure?
0: Well, I, I, I guess I perceive—I I don't really perceive it that way. I perceive that I tried something a particular way, that way didn't work. I still want to get to the uh, the end goal. What's a better way to do it? So I've never really, you know, again going back to college, I've never really viewed it as okay. I can't do this, I view it as the the approach I tried to take didn't work, so I need to figure out a different approach if I really want to achieve this.
2: That's a really healthy attitude, because obviously it teaches you something, it gives you data, doesn't it? It gives you information, rather than saying, don't do this again.
0: Well, and, and I guess the other thing that we can't overlook in this is... That has become a habit over time. So, one once one starts, um, once one fails at something and doesn't pick it back up, uh, then that that begins a habit. Okay, okay it won't work, so I'm not going to try again. And fortunately, going back, uh, you know, as far back as I can remember, I haven't had that habit. So. For, you know, that may, and, and that may be something that your listeners kind of need to rethink how they react to a setback. It's not, it's not fatal. It's, it's, uh, it, it, you're going to fail at things if you try to achieve things. Some of them you're going to fail at. You just got to reinvent it and, and, uh, and try a different direction.
2: Yeah. That, that's really powerful advice. And this goes with risk taking, doesn't it? Fear of failure, fear of taking risk is the same thing. You know, what if the risk doesn't work? What if it costs me money or time? So, what about you? Because, you know, you've obviously taken risks in your life. We've all taken risks, whether we think we're a risk taker or not. What's your attitude towards taking bigger risks in business in terms of, you know, adding team members on, maybe opening another office, transitioning into your own practice? How do you approach taking risks?
0: So let, let me let me kind of revise the question just a little bit because I think this is very useful. Um, when I'm faced with uh, options on something, uh, you can do it three different ways. My mindset goes to okay. What is the downside? What what are the um, what What is the price of failure with the option I want? And if the price of failure is something I can accept, then I'll take that option. If I can accept the price of failure, then uh, then I will take the most aggressive option. And if I cannot, and there are plenty of cases when you cannot, then you try a different direction where you can accept the downside. And you know, you can go... There's plenty of stuff written on this, I'm, you know, that I, I'm not going to belabor, but you go into it and say, okay, this is the option I want. If I don't, if this one doesn't work out, what's the punishment? What's the pain? And, uh, and that's really how I tend to make most decisions these days. Okay, I want to do this. If it blows up on me, what's the price of failure? And if I can accept the price of failure, I'll take that. I'll make that decision.
2: Interesting. And you, I know you've written a book, haven't you, about um, transitioning and, and creating, uh, build, uh, opening your own practice. And I think it's, it's something that you said you've written for younger financial advisors.
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, and I've discovered this more so in the uh, in the independent space. Um, because of the culture I was in. Literally, literally dating back to the late 1990s, it was, it was welcomed, it was embraced that the financial advisor could also be the portfolio manager, that we could actually manage stock and bond portfolios on our own. The, uh, the, the culture of the firm back in the late 1990s into the 2000s was as long as you can fulfill a certain amount of criteria, you can manage the portfolios yourself. So we began doing that. Um, we, we continue to do that even today, uh, and we'll continue to do it because I think there's, there's, there's advantages to it. Um, but w- w- as I look for successors, as I look for young financial advisors, I need them to be able to embrace the ability to, in addition to providing financial advice, also be comfortable with managing client stock and bond portfolios. So I wrote a book and began in the summer of 2021. It was published in 2022. It was a bestseller within that niche. Um, uh, and, you know, the fun part of it is I was, I was, I, I was uh, 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 suggesting that many of the things that people depend on in terms of how they manage uh, clients' portfolios were, in fact, dated. They were no longer valid. So that's why I named it The False Hope of Global Diversification, Confessions of a Portfolio Management Maverick. The book was great. I'm, I, I'm, it was cathartic. I enjoyed writing it. I've used it on many, many occasions. What I would encourage every financial advisor to do is to think through where their practice is differentiated versus their peers and do the same thing. It's not that expensive to write a book, and it's way better than a business card. So I'd encourage any of your listeners to, and I'm happy to talk to them about it. Uh, easiest way to get, get a hold of me is find me on LinkedIn and, 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 and message me there. But my, my larger point is, it, it was a lot of work to do. It was cathartic, but it also kind of focused me on the key goals that I'm trying to achieve as a financial advisor.
2: Really, really great advice. In terms of what you've learned so far in life, what would you say is the biggest lesson that life has taught you so far?
0: Um, number one, set your priorities. But number two, on a regular basis, rethink your priorities. So number one, and, and it doesn't have to be like in, you know, we're in, we're in the middle of December now, we're at the holidays. It doesn't have to be a New Year's resolution kind of thing. But as you gather more data, and as you find things that conflict with what you believe, reset your priorities if you need to. But focus on goals. Those goals lead to priorities in terms of activities. Um, and then keep track. You know, uh, keep track. You know, I um, uh, I literally did. It's Monday. So I literally, um, this morning, updated... You know, how, how we sit in terms of asset levels and in terms of numbers of accounts and things like that. So keep track of the metrics around it, but set your goals. I have a couple goals on a three-by-five card taped to my monitor, and I look at those every day. But don't be afraid to, as new information comes in, reset the goals because, you know, life teaches you things about uh, about what you're trying to do, and maybe those goals aren't going to apply at some time in the future. So don't be afraid to reset them, but always kind of move towards certain goals.
2: That's a great point. Have clear goals. Many people don't have clear goals. They have this fuzzy notion in their head about what they may want. If you don't have clear goals, then you don't know where you're going. There isn't a clear direction of travel. So I would completely back you up on that. Have clear goals. Sit down and think about what you really want not what society wants for you or your parents or your peer group want for you, what you truly, truly want for yourself in your life.
0: And and again, as as the years go by, the months go by, you gather new information, don't be afraid of revising those goals, but always have something you're driving toward.
2: Wonderful. Thank you. Mike, final question. How can our listeners and our viewers find out more about you and the amazing work that you're doing?
0: Well, you know, uh, I, I've spent more time in the last six months than I've spent on LinkedIn in the last six years. One thing that's occurred with LinkedIn is since, since Microsoft bought it, they've really put a lot more muscle into it. It's easy to find people. I will say literally that I had a I have a call scheduled for later today I looked at the gentleman's name. I couldn't remember it. So I, found it. so I found him on LinkedIn, and I knew exactly what we were going to talk about. So I would say leverage your LinkedIn presence. And I'm, I'm Michael P. Ross on LinkedIn. You can find me there. I check my emails on a very regular basis. So that's a good way to make contact.
2: Wonderful. Thank you. And for anyone who wants to contact Mike about writing their own book or anything else, let's reach out to him on LinkedIn. Thank you so much. It's been amazing having you on the show. And thank you for sharing all your wisdom and all your experience and all your mindset tips with us today. And for everyone who's been listening and watching, thank you so much for joining us. Until next time. Bye-bye for now.
0: Thanks, Nina. I appreciate it.
1: I hope you enjoyed the episode today on the Wealthy Advisor Mindset. Make sure to hit subscribe on your chosen platform to get notifications on upcoming episodes. If this episode made you think of someone who you think would benefit from listening to it, then go ahead, take a screenshot and share this episode with them or post it on your social media to share with your friends and colleagues. You can catch the show notes for this episode and any mentioned links in the description. If you're a financial advisor who is struggling to grow your AUM and profits while creating a great work-life balance and you know it's because your mindset is stopping you or you have a specific challenge in mind that you would love Nina's feedback on, go to chatswithnina.org and grab a time that works best for you. We'd love to see if we can help you. Once again, it's chatswithnina.org. We will see you in the next episode.